Philly, you are so wonderful and interesting. You deserve a local news podcast all your own. Check out the John Cast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. Billionaire Elon Musk looks to be on his way to buying Twitter. Now, this news has created a ton of buzz, and we wanted to dig into the story. First of all, what still has to happen before Musk actually owns the social media giant? Why would he want to do this in the first place? And how alarmed should we be that more and more power and wealth seems to be being put in fewer and fewer hands? For this discussion, we caught up with Dr. Steve Andriol. He is the Thomas G. Lebrecht Professor of Business Technology at the Villanova School of Business. So before we kind of dive into Elon Musk buying Twitter, I'm curious. Elon Musk is one of these guys that I think he is different things to different people. How would you describe Elon Musk? Well, first, I would describe him as a superb entrepreneur. I think he has wonderful ideas that tackle some major problems. You know, I thought the Boring Company was one of the most interesting ideas he ever had, attacking Earth transportation. Of course, then people would say, what about space transportation? That would be SpaceX. Another amazing idea. Tesla, wonderful as well. I mean, he's done some really incredible things that really blaze new trails and how we think about solving old problems. So in that regard, I have profound respect for him. Um, then on the other side of it, so I'm, I'm two-minded about Elon, is that why is he so involved in all these public policy issues? I mean, if I were a shareholder, I'd feel like, go run the company, make me money. You know, if I've got my pension parked there, then clearly I want you to make money for me. And I'd be asking questions like, why are you always getting involved in these things? I mean, what's the need that you're satisfying that takes you into these conversations? And then more recently, I'm even I'm confounded, you know, by why he would have any interest in a company like Twitter. What, what the hell is that? Um, unless you really want to insert yourself in the public slash global conversation about policy issues. And that raises the larger question. Why do you want to do that? So I'm two minded. And we're looking at a situation here where there's still a lot. Correct me if I'm wrong, as far as him actually taking control of Twitter, there's still a lot of steps that have to happen. A lot of people are acting as if, you know, he was handed the keys to the building already and and he's in control. We're still at like step three of several, correct? Yeah, there'll be more steps to go. There'll be some sort of analysis and of assessment of this. And I mean, the SEC will look at it, the government, all the parts will look at it briefly. Um, there's an open question as to will he actually run it day to day day to day. And I sort of ask myself, how many companies can one person be the CEO of, right? So I don't know if he's actually going to become the CEO. He may become the chairperson, although that, that didn't work out so well at Tesla. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think you're exactly right. There's more steps here. But I think everyone's sort of getting comfortable with the idea that he will participate directly in the global conversation about policy issues. The most obvious one, which is freedom of expression, free speech. And I just wish he would define what that means. So what do you think? Let's operate under the idea that he does eventually this deal goes through for what we understand it to be the tens of billions of dollars. You know, what do you think? It seems to me this could on one hand, there could be all this hand wringing from people and he takes it over and it's not much different because as you said, there's already so much on the plate. Um, 
there's obviously the chance that some of the things he said, you know, getting rid of bots, stuff like that, uh, that could be it end up being a positive. And then there's the he just unleashes, puts no restraints on anything, unleashes everything, and it turns into every awful uh, Twitter knockoff that the the political right has tried to create because they they can't say anything and everything they want. You know, do you have any kind of feel what you think this could mean? Well, a lot of this, of course, is to be determined, right? So I think when he talks about features, basically what we call human-computer interaction features, the way you interact with Twitter, um, getting rid of spam and other things and trolls, all good, right? Quote, unquote, all good. When he talks about tweaking algorithms, that's where he starts to slide into this freedom of expression space, which makes me somewhat nervous. So I don't think we know yet. I think if we take him at his word about sort of an open forum, the open public forum, to me, that's quite scary because, you know, I did a, I did a column yesterday in Forbes where I quoted his tweet of yesterday and he invited his most extreme critics onto Twitter to continue to criticize him extremely. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I immediately thought and wrote, what if someone comes after you with complete myths and disinformation about you or your company or your companies that adversely affect the valuation of those companies and hurt your investors who otherwise have no dog in the fight? Is that okay? I mean, where do you draw the line? You know, the proverbial, you can't yell fire in a movie theater, we know, but there's there's some reality to that expression, that concern. And if he says, well, I'm not going to do anything about it, and it does, in fact, hurt the valuation of his companies, then you begin to wonder, well, where's this line get drawn? Does it get drawn anywhere? I mean, I sort of had the same feeling about people that, and this, I don't want to get awfully political here, Matt, but I had the same feeling about vaccinations, right? People had the right to say, I don't want to get vaccinated. They may have had the right to say that based on, well, I'm not sure about the science, or I worry about, you know, what the long-term effects of the vaccination might be, fine. But you don't have the right to walk into a room full of people uh, getting chemotherapy who are obviously very uh, susceptible to the virus. And you don't have the right to spread it to people who are vulnerable. You don't have the right to hurt people. Well, take that same concept, bring it back to Twitter. The implication of completely opening this up is that anything goes. And my personal view is, well, it shouldn't be anything goes, not if it hurts lots of people, including your investors. And, you know, you can come up with a million of these examples. So I think, I don't know where he's going to draw the line. That, that's my concern. That is my concern. Free speech, in principle, wonderful. In practice, let's be careful. And I'll get destroyed now, but I think everyone understands what I'm trying to say. I'm interested. I saw that this was what he's paying. It's one fifth of his personal fortune. It would come out to be about a fifth. Uh, I mean, just from a business standpoint, does it make sense to to dump that much of your fortune into something like this? Well, that's where it gets really interesting. A lot of people are already talking about the fact that, well, is this a business investment or is it a kind of personal investment? If it's a business investment, it's a classic speculative investment. So he believes he has ideas that will increase where they got 207 million followers, participants. He has a plan in his mind to increase that to sort of Facebook-like numbers, which they're not even close to, of course. So if he believes in that, then he believes that the valuation will follow. 
and that the advertising, all kinds of things will follow. And he recreates a Facebook kind of model with some new rules, understandably, as he wants to define them, not so understandably, perhaps. But I mean, if he believes that's the business side, so he thinks this is a this is a, a jewel. This is something that you know needs to be polished. This is a diamond that's a rough diamond. We can polish this and make this worth a fortune. Stock is moving a little bit, not what I kind of expected. But if he believes that on the business side, then in his mind he thinks he got a discount. On the other hand, if it is more personally motivated, then you question. So you're willing to spend. $54 a share, $44 billion on a company that's got minimal revenue and minimal exposure, certainly vis-a-vis Facebook and even Instagram. Why? Why? I mean, if it's not a business investment, which you know, you and I could both craft an argument around speculative value five years out. If it's not that, then why? I mean, is it a principle? I mean, then it gets it gets scary. And then we start talking about basically the construction of the media industry of in the, in the world you've got very few people controlling most of the platforms and that to me is scarier so if it's if it's motivation number 2 not motivation number 1 ie business then i really get scared and that's why my last line in the forbes column was you know is anyone else nervous because i'm nervous yeah and that's a you bring that up i mean right off the top of my head you know obviously rupert murdoch with fox Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook, uh, Jeff Bezos with the Washington Post and, you know, Amazon Prime and such. And now let's assume Elon Musk with Twitter. You're talking about four guys who would have a, you know, a close to a stranglehold on a lot of the conversations that we have in this country. And that just seems, regardless of what you think of their individual personalities, politics, whatever, that just seems like a terrible idea. I think it's a horrible idea. I think it's a dangerous idea. And, you know, these days, the raging debate about, you know, what's good and bad for democracy is everywhere. And it's toxic in many, in many respects. But I think in this case, it's a legitimate perspective when you've got such a small number of people, you listed them, that control the media, um, the primary platforms for conversation in the world. Um, certainly in the United States, then I think it's cause for at least concern, if not just fright. So, I mean, there's lots of ways of looking at this, but I mean, you you listed the names. That is an absolutely frightening thing to me. I know that Obama made a speech what last week. He was talking about a whole different approach to this. It was almost as though he were anticipating the, the closing of the Twitter deal and saying, no, free speech is okay. It's wonderful. Of course, no one's arguing against that. But you know, to to not define it and to let it be um, hurtful and let it be destructive, maybe is a problem. Now, what he suggested, which is of course controversial as hell, is government regulation. He wants the government to be more involved in, uh, dare I use the word, policing content. And of course, Musk is setting himself up as the exact opposite of that. This is an interesting debate. It's forming, right? So, I mean, I would love to see, for example, when someone puts up a crazy bit of content, uh, not just salacious, but obviously inaccurate for some particular financial or political goal, that there'd be a button that uh, pops up or something, you know, in effect, a paywall that says, hey, this isn't right. And there's no, no or a better way to say it was we couldn't find any evidence to support this claim. Right. I mean, other ways, other ways you could softly do this, but just to let people that are participating know that this may not be right. I mean, you gotta be careful here. 
But even that's been, and that won't happen on Twitter, uh, not the way Musk has described he wants Twitter to operate. We'll see. We have to take a break. We will continue our conversation with Villanova's Dr. Steve Andriol right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. And we are back on KYW News Radio in depth, continuing our conversation with Dr. Steve Andriol. What is it? And we talked a little about this off the air. People like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, you go back, Steve Jobs, uh, American society, we tend to put these types of entrepreneurs, you know, business leaders, billionaires, we kind of put them on pedestals. And it seems to me a lot of people uh, make excuses for why they do this. And when I say people, I mean like the average person who's pulling in maybe 45 grand a year, but is finding reasons why it's okay that they have these monopolies. What is it about, and is it just in American society that we kind of uh, lionize these folks who you know are just kind of good at business? Or lucky, sometimes lucky at business. Um, or just having to be at the right place at the right time. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why some people acquire enormous wealth. Um, I, I, boy, you're somehow I'm, I'm forcing myself. Maybe it's not you to get into some of these political areas, but you know, the, the American dream is sort of that's the overarching concept, right? Anybody can make it. Anybody can become a millionaire, a billionaire, maybe even a trillionaire. Fine. So there's that's working sort of in the cultural. Um, that's part of the cultural backdrop. And then, so I think that when people see with that as a kind of stimulant, when people see someone who's a gazillionaire, then they think, well, that could be me. I mean, I've been told that the American dream enables that. The reality is, of course, which is the great conundrum, if not the irony um, of all of this, is the wealth inequality that exists, which is greater now than it's ever been. So clearly, if you just take that metric, <laughs> wealth inequality, the American dream ain't working, right? That's an empirical, don't attack me, everyone. That's an empirical metric that we could easily defend. And yet it persists. It's so interesting to me, right? Um, it, it's, it's, so we see these people and we believe that, um, and we even sometimes believe, and I began this podcast, you know, praising Elon's contributions to entrepreneurialism in some very important areas, for which I have enormous respect for what he's done. Um, so, I mean, th there's this, all these countervailing cultural uh, forces that are kind of at work um, in our minds. And even though there's very little data to support um, the likelihood of, of you or I becoming you know, billionaires. So I don't, then when you get into the, the issue of, of who these people are, we actually know very little about them. I mean, we're very about their personal lives and about what kinds of people they are. Not that it necessarily matters in terms of the value they bring to their companies, but I just I think it's one of those American conundrums. You ask the question, is it uniquely American? Um, I, I don't I haven't lived in all the countries in the world. I've been to a lot of, of Western countries. I think it is to some significant extent uniquely American. Wealth inequality, again, is perhaps more profound here than it is in, in other countries. Um, we know that, in fact, is the case for most of the Western countries. We know the American dream is uniquely described to most Americans, not so in many other Western economic countries. So I don't, I mean, I think it is. I mean, I think we sort of have to admit that, right? And then we do put them on pedestals. I did a column about that a year ago, and I, I don't understand it either. I mean, your question seems to imply neither of us understand it, but it, it is a phenomenon of how unique it is um, to be determined based on some empirical research. My students will tell you that 
Oh, he's always talking about the data. Yeah, I'm always talking about the data. Um, uh, we talked off the air about one of my students from Norway who loves to tell class that for the fourth year in a row, I think I've got the numbers right, Norway was determined as the happiest country in the world. And so we had to ask him, why is that the case? And he said, well, because we don't have the stress levels. You know, we do have free education. We do have free health care. We have those sorts of things. Now, again, I'm going to be I'm just quoting someone. But he that was his argument. I thought it was a, it was a powerful argument, actually. So in America, it's it's very much as, you know, working accomplishment um, off the air. We talked about people and you just mentioned it again, that have two or three jobs they are pulling in forty five, fifty thousand dollars a year. How's it you know, how's it working for you? Right. That's an obvious question. Not so well. So I think um, it's it's just amazing how you've got all this wealth inequality, and yet somehow the American dream persists. I'm fascinated by that. I'm, I should talk to my political scientists and sociologist colleagues about that because I I've, I've been confused about it for a long, long time. Going back strictly looking at this deal, we talked about there's a lot of steps. Are there any you can see where there could be? problems where there are, you know, other than just kind of the, for lack of a better term, the regulatory rubber stamps that we've come to expect? Is there anything that you could see that could really maybe make this uh, not the sure thing that it's being portrayed as? I think it's likely to happen. There's an interesting article that appeared today in the New York, was it the Wall Street Journal? I think it was the Wall Street Journal about how the deal was done. And I think these kinds of things these kinds of analyses, these kinds of due diligence after the fact are kind of pro forma. I mean, I say that based on the oligarchical structure of the technology world we now live in, right? I mean, if you look at cloud providers, we're working basically with four and that occupy 70, 80% of the market. I just did some research on the number of companies that are making batteries for EVs, for electric vehicles. It's three. We talked about media already. There's like six, then how they're controlled. So we're really pretty, I could go on with the oligarchical kind of data, as my students remind me, about in the technology industry. We're kind of becoming comfortable with this. I'm not sure why. I mean, I've been told by many people, uh, even older than I, that, oh, this one, 1970s, there would be changes made. The you know Antitrust laws would kick in and they'd be robust. We don't seem to have them. And yet they're screaming in Congress about that, mostly in, from the, some certain senators, about the oligarchical structure of the technology industry. Social media. I mean, how many social media? Now we have, you know, just it's really basically three or four. TikTok snuck its way in, which was kind of interesting. But basically, there's four or five, probably at the most, and that's being generous. So here we go again. So across the board. So I don't expect anything to happen. I don't expect anything to change. I think the deal will go through. I'd be surprised if it didn't. And about how long would something like this take? Months? Months. I don't think it's going to take years. That's for sure. There may be some core challenges to it on certain bases. I doubt that will happen as well. One of the things that's really interesting about this um, is the theater of all of this. I mean, to your question before about we hold, we put CEOs on pedestals. How about the theater of this? We love theater. I mean, isn't it amazing that the acquirer is on Twitter, the company he's buying, talking about the company he's buying and how he's going to be behaving when he runs it. I mean, this is unbelievable. It's great theater. People wake up and want to see what Elon has said. In the, and he, of course, knows this. And he's, in, he's, a, he's superb at manipulating the media. I mean, some would say trolling the media, but he's really good at this. 
But I haven't seen this. I mean, in the past, many, not so many years ago, CEOs would just run their companies. They would just, just you know, they would try to increase shareholder value. And we love them for that. Right. But now more recently, we've got CEOs and companies, right? Dare I dare I mention Disney, you know, involved in all kinds of things. That wasn't the case 15 years ago. And some would argue that this is all phenomenon of social media. There's a great article by Professor Height that was published, I believe, in The Atlantic. I hope I didn't get that wrong, um, about uh, the impact of social media since 2014. And it's it's fabulous. It's a very long article, although, you know, I got nervous when when Bezos was tweeting how great it was. I mean, like this is all like crazy. Right. And now we talked off the air. Bezos is now criticizing the deal because and maybe he's going to raise some issues because he says it's going to it's going to enable undue Chinese influence. So when when deals become theater. Right. Then you start to worry and wonder about these things. And, and one you know, one thing I worry about, which is even kind of weirder, is this is the technology industry. This is social media. This is the global conversation. Well, what if the billionaires got together and said, let's do food? <laughs> let's do energy. Right. You know, I can raise 100 billion with a few phone calls. Let's do that. Um, and so it's a, well, what's going on? It's a larger issue around control. Right. And I guess it's an extension of of wealth inequality. I don't know. I'm not qualified to make that large a judgment, but I think that there's some weird forces at work. Um, you started off by mentioning some of them, by naming some of the, the individuals that own media. Well, it doesn't have to stop at media, Matt. It could go into other, other areas, other financial, other industry verticals. It certainly could. Food, energy, lots of areas. How about ground transportation? Elon's got space transportation doing well, but why not, why not ground transportation? which has been a problem. I mean, the boring company is kind of related to that, but there's other other examples. So I don't know. I don't know if it's what's going on. I mean, I'm an old, in terms of the way I used to like the space program, I'd like when NASA was doing it, right? So, I'm, you know, I, I started my career at DARPA. So it's it's like, you know, of course we did everything, right? We turned it over eventually, but we did everything. And now you have basically the space program that's been privatized. I mean, I see very little about that. And by the way, I see very little about how you started this podcast and how I wrote about it and my concerns about this concentration of media power. I see very little of this. I'm scanning everything now. You know, my feedly's blowing up. It's like, I see very little debate or conversation about, hold it. You know, maybe there's a bigger problem here. Very little about that. I find that fascinating. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.